Well, as we continue this morning to develop this idea that life for the believer in Jesus is mission, we come to Acts chapter 12 in our study of the book of Acts, and with it to the reality that this life-consuming, all-consuming, sacrificial in nature, pouring myself out, even like Jesus, mission that we're called to of taking the gospel mercies of Christ and the gospel message of Christ to the world in which we live. Okay, we come to the reality today that this is not an easy mission. And I think we kind of already understand that. I mean, it's like we look at the mission and we realize, all right, if I'm going to be on this mission, I'm going to have to do some things I don't really want to do. And I'm going to have to not do some things I'd really like to do. I'm going to have to say some things to folks that I don't really want to say, and I'm not going to get to say some things that I'm really itching to say. I'm going to have to go places I don't want to go in truth and not go places in truth I really desperately want to go. And I'm going to have to take things, you know, like my whole, my all, and entrust them to God that I don't really want to entrust even to God. It's not an easy mission. We get that. So here's the part of the message that I really want you to see. This is what we're going to focus on. Though the mission is difficult, though there is suffering involved in the mission of following the suffering servant who is Jesus Christ, the sufferings that we encounter as we seek to live our lives as mission by the power of his spirit for his glory. Okay, here's the deal. First of all, They provide us with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to relate to Jesus, to identify with Jesus, to come to understand and appreciate and know Jesus, and even to love Jesus more than we ever otherwise could or would had we never experienced those difficulties, that suffering. And secondly, they end in glory. They end in glory for the believer in Christ. And you say, well, Tom, how do you know that? Well, that's the pattern, and we're going to see that pattern today as we pick up our study in Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, where Luke, the author of this great book, says this. He says that at about that time, meaning at about the time that the Christian gospel has begun, as we saw last week, to pour forth out of the Jewish Christian community now into the Gentile world and beginning to blur all of the lines that had stood for literally thousands of years, barriers and walls between the Jewish people and the Gentile people, as it's beginning to take Jew and Gentile now, as it just spreads out like a wildfire and make them into one new people. At that time, Herod, the king, who is in charge of all of Judea and has been given that title by the Romans, just like his great-grandfather or his grandfather was. All right, look what he does because it's language of suffering. Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and here's why he did it, because he knew that it would please the Jewish masses. He knew that the majority of his populace, if you will, would be really happy if he did this because they were in a major uproar over all the walls that are falling between Jew and Gentile, and they probably felt like their very distinctive, if you will, as a people was beginning to disappear. It's not a little thing. So to curry their favor, he realizes, hey, you know, this is a political opportunity for me. It will make them happy if I lay violent hands on these guys. And so he lays violent hands, and not just on regular Christians, but on the leadership. In verse 2, Luke says that, in fact, he killed James, the brother of John, one of the Lord's three most intimate disciples and one of the most visible leaders of this church And he killed him with the sword, which basically just means that he cut his head off. And so if you're following along so far, you might be thinking, okay, well, um, how did this whole beheading experience exactly 
provide James with an opportunity to, uh, what did you say, relate to, identify with, come to understand, appreciate, know, and even love Jesus more than he ever otherwise could have or would have had he kept his head. And how exactly did losing his head literally end in glory? And I think the answer to that is very simple conceptually. It's getting our hearts around it. It's putting it into practice in our own lives that, that we need help with. Look, it provided James with an opportunity to identify with his Savior in a way that he never otherwise could have or would have because as James went through this experience, I have no doubt in my mind that he went through this experience realizing every element of this experience was experienced by Christ and was experienced by Christ for him. It's very personal. Jesus was arrested, just like James was arrested, and he was arrested for him. So James is arrested, and he's going, man, this is a drag, and Christ suffered this for me. James is humiliated, and he realizes Jesus was humiliated. He suffered this for me. James is abused. He realizes Jesus was abused. James is unfairly charged, tried, convicted, and then executed. And he walks through this whole season of life identifying with Christ in ways and on levels and with a depth and with an understanding and with an appreciation and with an affection and with a love that he never otherwise could have. The reality is oftentimes we go through seasons of suffering and we feel like God is farthest away from us then when in fact... If we'll just think about it, he's closest to us. His own story is being reduplicated in our story. And how did it end in glory? My goodness, he lost his head and he gained heaven. That's how. But here's the problem. When you and I suffer, here's what our tendency is. Our tendency is to think far more about ourselves than we think about Christ. It's to focus far more upon what we've lost or we're losing than it is to focus upon all of the opportunity for gain. If only we would develop eyes that see and hearts that seize and savor the reality that as we suffer, we're reduplicating in many ways the sufferings of the Savior whom the Scripture comes to us and says, hey, let me tell you something about this Jesus. He's not a high priest who's unable to sympathize. No, 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 no. He sympathizes with you in all of your weaknesses, in your temptations. He, he gets it and your experiences in this life, and yet without sin. And if you just begin to replay the life of Jesus in your mind and in your heart, you realize, my goodness, there's all of these opportunities to identify with Him as you go through whatever it is that you go through in life. And it's like there's a fruit tree standing in the midst of this desert called, I'm suffering right now, and it's just hanging with fruit that if you'll just walk over and, and in faith take and eat, it will be life to you. Jesus will be realer to you, more comprehensible perhaps than ever. Guys, the King of heaven forsook all of the benefits of heaven, and he entered into this planet as a peasant Jewish slave of the Roman Empire. And a Galilean Jew at that, which really means something. It means that not only was he despised by everyone else in the world, he was also despised by his own Jewish kinsmen. When Nathaniel, a Jew, hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, what does he say? He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now look, that's not just his opinion. That's everyone's opinion. So what can Jesus identify with? Oppression? Injustice? Poverty, being despised, being thought to be worthless. My goodness, can anything good come from him? 
Maybe you can identify with that. Well, it gets more interesting because Jesus is also born of a questionable birth. I mean, aside from Joseph and Mary, who in that little village, and remember, it's a little village, little villages talk, okay? So who in that little village believed the virgin birth other than Joseph and Mary? I'm going with no one. I mean, would you have believed it? Be honest. So Jesus knows from an early age what it's like to be singled out. He is, and forgive me, but I'm just going to say it. He, from the perspective of his village, is the son of a whore, the product of fornication in a very conservative little town. And he's probably an odd little boy in the sense that he's perfect and, you know, we're not. So that would stand out, wouldn't it? He knows prejudice. He knows what it is to be scorned. He knows what it is to be left out and ostracized and picked on and rejected. He knows what it is to be excluded. And he knows as well what it is to be gossiped about and murmured about and whispered about. Because think about this for a minute. Not only does he have a very suspicious-looking birth, but Jesus never got married in a culture in which everyone got married. So what kind of rumors do you think he was subjected to? It's not a big leap, is it? I mean, you can just hear like a couple of the moms standing on the corner, and there goes that odd little boy Jesus with a suspicious birth. And I hear that he told his parents not to arrange a marriage for him. Like, who does that? What's his problem? Doesn't he like girls? Jesus understands what those kind of rumors feel like. It's interesting. Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, died when he was still young, so he knows the pain of that kind of death. Since he's the oldest son, like the whole family then looked to him to support them, so he understands the pressure of that. Then, of course, in his public ministry, he learned what it's like to be lied to and lied about, to be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, to have people so embarrassed of him that here's the deal, they snuck over to see him at night so no one would know. He knows what it's like to pour his heart and his soul into people only in his greatest hour of need to have those people forsake him, deny him, betray him, sell him out, and run from him. And of course, then he knows what it is to be arrested, humiliated, mistreated, abused, and then falsely tried, charged, convicted, and executed for the crimes of other people. And to cry out to his father to be delivered from it, only to die. Thinking there are a few points of identification in there somewhere. And I only covered about half of it. Look, the mission that he calls us to is not an easy mission, and we get it. It's like, yep, I know, I I do things I don't want to do, say things. You know, it's like, you just know it, don't you? It's part of the reason you don't go all in on Jesus. If I do that, it's going to cost me this, and then... But do you have eyes to see the sweetness of it? Because even in the sufferings, there is sweetness. Even in the sufferings, there is reward. There is the reward of not only being productive for His mission, but of coming to know this Savior in a unique and special and profound way as you identify again and again and again and again with the one who suffered 
for you and who walks through suffering with you. And parenthetically, it ends in glory, for that's the pattern. And we see that pattern really now with this story about Peter. Very carefully told tale, okay? So watch the details. Luke says this, beginning in verse 3, says that when Herod saw that killing James pleased the Jews, so it worked. That was the plan. Well, he then proceeded to arrest Peter also in order to kill him is the idea. But then Luke says that this arrest of Peter took place during the days of unleavened bread, which is really just during the days of the Passover. Now, why does that matter? Why do all the details of the story matter? Because Jesus was arrested and put to death at the time of the Passover, and we're looking for the story of Jesus being reduplicated in the life of Peter. There's a lesson there. It's like he shares in his suffering. So he tells us that for starters, okay, they're both arrested at the same time of year. And then he continues in verse 4, and he says that when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people and to execute him publicly. And so Peter was kept in prison during this Passover week, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, why is the church praying for him? I think at least in part because, guys, that's all that they can do. They had no army. They had no money. They had no power. They had no influence. They couldn't, you know, fly Johnny Cochran in on a private jet and have him get him off with some clever rhyme or something. There's none of those things were available. They couldn't pray and also do something else to effect a deliverance for Peter. God had stripped them of absolutely everything but himself. And he's going to reveal to them that that that's enough. And it's enough for us too. God does that for us sometimes too. It's like none of the resources that we have, none of our wisdom, none of our health, none of our contacts, none of our money, none of our whatever can get us out of this one. And I have no choice but to cry out to the Lord. And yet I think that there's a point of identification there with Jesus too. Jesus cried out to God to be delivered from the cup of suffering that God placed into His hands that you and I might, through His death, burial, and resurrection, be forgiven. And Jesus was not delivered from death. He experienced it. The cup of suffering ended with death, and sometimes that's our plight as well. Sometimes that's the will of God for us. There are people here today who are going to suffer, perhaps, from an addiction, okay, all your days until your last day, and you'll be delivered through death, but it will be trying between now and then. There are folks who will suffer from certain kinds of temptations that just afflict them over and over and over and over again, and you think it's gone, and there it is again, and it's gone for a while, and now it's back, and you think you're healed, but nope, here it comes until you die. There are folks who are in difficult marriages, and look, they can get better, and there will be seasons where everything's nice, and maybe things are good, but the reality is that some of us are called to suffer in difficult marriages, and God works through those things. In us, as a result, we're different people for having to deal with the difficulty of it and having to recognize that He's more important to us than comfort. Until death do you part. 
There are folks here who have responsibilities that they'll never be able to lay down in this life. They'll lay them down when they are laid down. Look, God does deliver us. We'll see him deliver Peter, but here's the deal. Sometimes you're Peter and sometimes you're James. And the point is, in either case, it's okay. Because you find your Savior in a more profound way than ever in your suffering if you'll develop the eyes to see Him. And it ends in glory, guys. And we need to stop underselling that. We spend all of our time evaluating everything that happens to us in this life purely from a selfish perspective and as if this life is all that there is when it's not. It's a little, tiny thing compared to a great big thing called eternity. And so Luke says in verse 5, and look for the pattern, that Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then he says, now when Herod was about to bring Peter out to kill him, is the idea, on that very night, so it's the night before he's going to bring him out and kill him publicly, Peter was sleeping. Now what is sleep in the Bible? What is it metaphorical of? It's metaphorical of death, and we see that in several different locations in the Scripture, and you have to have these categories in your mind if you're going to see the pattern. Jesus has a friend named Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick. Jesus gets the memo. Lazarus is sick. Jesus waits for Lazarus to die. Then he says to his disciples, Lazarus is asleep, and now we're going to go wake him up. We're going to go wake him up? They're like, look, you know, you just need to let him rest. He's not been well. And then it says that Jesus spoke plainly to them and said, Lazarus is dead, but sleep for the believer in Christ, or death for the believer in Christ is spoken of in terms of sleep. Peter is asleep. I'm not saying he's dead, but keep these ideas in mind and you'll see what's going on. Peter was sleeping, and how? Between two soldiers. So he has one on his right and he has one on his left, and he's bound to these two soldiers with chains, is he not? And centuries before the doors were guarding the prison, and the word prison there is literally the word pit. He's in a pit. And behold, an angel of the Lord, who came to free him from the pit, stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And now notice what the angel does. Luke says that he, this angel, struck Peter where? On the side. And what's fascinating is that as you go through the Bible and you look at all the occasions in the Bible where an angel strikes someone, they don't recover. They don't live to tell the story. It is a death blow, including, by the way, in this exact same chapter of Acts 12. It's the next story, this guy Herod, struck by an angel. It's a fatal blow. So envision this for a minute. Peter is sleeping. It's metaphorical of death. Chained to one guy on his right, chained to another guy on his left. So now what does he look like? He looks like this. While he looks like this, he is struck in the side by an angel, which would ordinarily be a death blow. But it's not to him. For Luke says in verse 7 that the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him from the dead. No, but from sleep. He woke him from the dead. Well, okay, from sleep, saying, get up quickly. That's actually not what it says. What it says is, arise. 
I'm sorry, but that matters. It's language of resurrection. He says, arise, and the chains fell off his hands. And then Luke says, and the angel said to him, dress yourself, which means put your underwear on. He's talking about his undergarments, if you will. That's the first part he's going to get dressed in. And put on your sandals, and Peter did so. And then the angel said to him, wrap your cloak around you. And you're like, what's with all the details? And now he's putting on his outer garment, if you will. The details matter, guys. And the reason they matter is because when Peter was hanging there with a guy on his right and a guy on his left, asleep looking like this, struck in the side with what would ordinarily kill you, but in his case doesn't, he's crucified. I mean, he's hanging there naked. A lot of correspondences. Get dressed, the angel says, and follow me. And Peter went out and followed him, but Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. It's like, you know, am I dreaming? Am I sleeping? Thought he was seeing a vision. And now count all the barriers that he has to pass through, the impediments, if you will, to his freedom from the pit. How many are there? Well, Luke starts counting them for us. He says, when they had passed the first and the second guard... They then came to the third impediment, which was the iron gate leading into the city. And then, of course, the stone rolled away of its own accord. And No, well, actually, what it says is that the iron gate opened for them of its own accord. And they went out, and they went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where there were many gathered together and were praying for his deliverance. And when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, what happens? A servant girl named Rhoda, so a girl, came to answer and recognizing Peter's voice. She recognizes who he is by his voice. In her joy, she left him standing there. She's so stunned and full of joy that she just takes off. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported to the disciples, is the point, that Peter was risen from the... Well, actually, no. But he was standing at the gate. And they said to her, get this, you are out of your mind. See, just like us, they have no trouble believing that God will say no to the prayer that they offer, at least how and when they've offered it. A harder time believing that God will say yes, that He will, in fact, bring deliverance. Sometimes He does, you know, sometimes you're Peter. Other times you're James, but the point is it's all good. It ends well. So they said to her, you know, you're out of your mind. And, and she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. Like, that's the best we can come up with because it can't actually physically be him. Last time we saw him, he was like this. How do you get out of that? He's in a pit. Guards, the first one, the second one, the, the stone, I mean the gate. But Peter kept knocking. He's pounding on the door, you know beckoning for them and us to believe that, that God does the miraculous. And when they opened the gate, finally, they saw Him and they were amazed. And then He showed to them His nail-pierced hands. Okay, maybe not. But motioning to them with His hand to be silent, He described to them how the Lord had brought Him out of the prison. And He said to them, 
tell these things to James, meaning James, the brother of Jesus, different James, and to the brothers. So he commissions them. He sends them out to tell the story of his deliverance. And then he ascended into heaven. No, but it does say that he then departed and went to another place. And with one exception, this is the last time that you'll see Peter in the book of Acts. He's been like the main character until here. And you say, well, that's really kind of interesting, maybe. But could you just kind of tie this thing up, you know, sum it up for me, put a bow on it? Uh, maybe. I'll try. To sum it up, I'd say that the mission that we're on, uh, it, it's a difficult mission. And, and it does require us to do and not do and say and not say and go and not go. All kinds of places that we'd either like to not go or do or say or really would like to do, say, or go. It requires us to take our all and and to give it to God. And let's just be honest. We'd like to give God this and this and this, but not this, 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 or this. And then to entrust that to Him, no matter what that may mean. That involves difficulties. That involves suffering. But instead of failing to see God in that, we need to develop eyes that see God most clearly in that. And find Him most profoundly because the reality is that those sufferings that we encounter provide us, if we're looking, with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to relate to, to identify with, to come to understand, appreciate, know, and love this Jesus who suffered for you in ways that that you would otherwise be deprived of, and in ways that are so valuable, they outweigh the weight by far of the suffering, though that may be very heavy. And look, it ends in glory. Like no matter what happens with you in life, in Christ, for forever, it's all good. That's the pattern. That's the pattern we see here in the life of Peter. It's the pattern of Jesus who himself was arrested and placed in bonds at the time of the Passover, tried before a guy named Herod, crucified naked by the Romans between two people, one on the right, one on the left, right? And for what reason? To appease the Jewish people who were in an uproar over him. While he's hanging there sleeping the sleep of death, he endures what would have otherwise been a death blow. For they verified his death by taking a spear and jamming it up under his ribs, up into his heart. Placed into a pit, guarded by Roman soldiers, after three days, three impediments to his freedom, he, was, he arose from the sleep of death, freed by an angel. And who discovered that the tomb was empty? It's a group of women. What do they do? They run to see the disciples. What do the disciples say? You are out of your mind. It's pretty precise. Mary Magdalene is the first to realize, hey, this is the risen Jesus. She sees him, but how does she recognize him? It's not until he speaks. She recognizes him by his voice. And then we have that story of how they're all gathered together in a room, and though the door is shut, Jesus appears and he motions to them, if you will, with his hands, and he shows them the scars from the nails and calls them ultimately up on the Mount of Olives. And He commissions them to go tell the world the story of his deliverance and how the world can be delivered. 
by means of the benefits of his life and death and burial and resurrection as the full payment for our sin and the full purchase of his people, of all who come to him in faith. Then he ascends into heaven and disappears entirely from the book of Acts except once. It's all there. The mission is not easy, guys. But it's full of opportunities for you to draw near to, to come to know and appreciate and love the Savior who suffered in like fashion for you. Don't miss that. It's like the fruit tree in the desert, man. Full of fruit. And it's all good in the end. So I want to challenge you guys to do two things. First of all, to prayerfully consider the life of Jesus in your own life in light of it and start looking for the correspondence. To stop focusing so much on yourself and to start focusing on Him. To realize this is an opportunity for me to focus on Him. This is an opportunity for me to get to know Him. This is an opportunity for me to relate to Him. Instead of being resentful that He's allowing me to go through this, this is an opportunity, it's a privilege, in fact, to draw close to Him who will walk through this with me and who's secured my story, no matter how it ends. And then secondly, to remember that this life that involves suffering will, in fact, end in glory for you, and to stop evaluating your life solely in terms of how things affect you in this life. This life is not all there is, and we're called to live with the freedom and joy of the reality that even if we're not free from whatever it is until we die, we will be free indeed and forever then. And that's a beautiful thing. So draw close to Christ in your sufferings. Look for Him. Don't run from Him. Draw near to Him. Don't resent Him. And recognize that He suffered like you for you. And remember, it's all good in the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for a Savior that delivers from all things. Sometimes right when and where we pray it, and oh boy, Lord, even exactly how we pray it, and oftentimes not. And yet He delivers us. And He works all things in the in-between time for His glory and for our good. God, let us see the good in the difficult paths that You give us in life. Let us see the good in the sufferings that we endure as we seek to follow and, and worship You with our lives. God, let us identify with our Lord in all of these different areas and find Him near even when we thought that he was far. Let us see, let us seize, and let us savor those opportunities and enjoy the rich blessings that belong to us purchased by the one who suffered for us. And let us keep squarely in mind, guys, that it ends well because of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.